They say every thousand years there comes a bird of myth to challenge our perception of who, what, where, why, and with. All that legend's not me. Don't worry about it, man. It ain't old Fat Kef's myth. It's Jonathan Livingston's sales goal, bitch. The bird of salesmanship. He flies like the jizz flies when that shit's externally popped. He's just bringing y'all some savings, man. That bird, he only wants you to shop. The bird soars over every nation's borders, man. Bird, this big can't be stopped because this bird is going to fly you around the world to wherever a live Smodco show drops. Let me testify for the bird for a minute, man. I was blind. The bird gave me sight. I was scrawny weakling. The bird made me fat and powerful. Now I just want to get back to the bird. And since child sacrifice and burnt offerings are illegal in this country freedom of religion my ass we offered a bird some money man writ large across a melancholy sky full of peanut butter all oh, the bird of salesmanship's flying children look up he's flying some savings over your fucking head man he wants you to reach up and grab for him man bird's a giver man bird's like some really good weed or a blowjob so good it makes you think you're in love had one of those birds thinking about it her name was susan bird was pretty sure they'd get married only because the blowjob was that powerful that's what the bird that's where the bird learned his very craft man he's heartbroken where we learn things in life man from the pain that others inflict on us it's a lesson the bird wants to teach you man uh let me ask you this you want to go to a fucking smodco show you better after listening to all this chatter. Uh, we're going to send you, man. Well, we're not going to send you. That would require us paying. But you could go. I'm going to tell you where they all are, man. All the live Smodco shows. You listen to all this shit for free on Smodcast.com. How you pay us back, you ask? Like I'm sure you're always asking. Why you pick up a ticket for a live Smodco show? You could come see us do our thing live. You can listen to it for free online. But you could be right there in the room. Jay and Silent Bob get old. Hollywood Babylon. Uh, Smodcast. Uh, all myriad of shows. The Secret Stash, as we'll hear later on. But let's get to it, man. Because we're on the second round of the bird music. And I know that irritates people. Fuck them. I'll send the bird after him. Bird's like a goddamn golem. You tell him who you want dead. And I'm not going to say the bird does it, but I'm going to say people wind up fucking dead when the bird's not happy. Soul dead, not physically dead. I don't want to scare any children out there. Um, but when you're soul dead, kids, you might as well be fucking physically dead. Soul is your essence, your life. Bird knows this. Bird caters to that soul. And he caters to your funny bone. Bird wants to tickle it with his beak, man, while he takes your money. Takes your money with his beak, puts it under his wing, and then tickles you with his beak. It's a, it's a process, man. The process happens this Friday, October 12th. Man, you want to come see... The Comic Book Men crew at New York Comic Con. That's right. October 12th, 245 to 345. We got a panel. It's me. It's Walt. It's Bry. It's Ming. It's Mike. It's the Comic Book Men, man. Right there at New York Comic Con. And we're going to be showing you some clips, man. It's a five-minute sizzle reel. It's pretty damn funny. I watch it. Uh, and then Q&A with the boys. Oh, what merry times they're going to be. But it's only an hour, man. 1245, 345. What if you're like, I'm going to be at some other fucking panel. Nerdist, man. I can't go to you. Nerdist is happening. Well, guess what? You can see us again at night. Yeah, when shit gets sexy, right, bird? Tops come off. 
and people walk out around without pants on and shit. I must be walking, thrusting my dick like this. If I get fucked, that's my own fault. Uh, check it out, man. Gramercy Theater that night, October 12th, The Secret Stash Live. Very first time we're doing that Smodco podcast live. It was our companion podcast to the Comic Book Men's Show. Come see it live right there on stage at the Gramercy. Tickets at csmod.com. Night after that, man, I'm going to Boston, you massholes. I'm going to be on the stage by myself, standing there doing uh, Evening with Kev Smith, Q&A. 9.45 at night. It's only two hours, man. We'll be out of there by midnight or something. Good times. Good times. Ask me anything. It's like a Reddit ask me anything, except it's happening in real fucking life. Real time, right in front of you and shit. Night after that, don't forget Comic Book Men coming back to the air season two. Uh, October 14th, right after the Walking Dead and the Talking Dead, man. Then you got yourselves the Squawking Dead. Squawking Dead of Jane Silent Bob's Secret Stash and Comic Book Men. October 14th, 11.30 at night. That's right, this season we're a late night show, man, 11.30. Uh, check it out, it's good. First episode is really fucking funny. I, I'll be honest with you, every episode I've seen is really fucking funny, but I'm biased, I like those guys quite a bit. October 16th, man, answers the age-old question. People will be going, where the fuck is Jay and Silent Bob get old? Did Muse fall off the wagon? No, absolutely not. In fact, Muse went and did a directing job, which I'm sure we'll tell you about next time we do a show. We just haven't had a live show schedule. We ran out of bank shows, man. But October 16th, we rectify that. Silver Spring, Maryland. You can be my man. Uh, Welsh witch like a motherfucker. The uh, Silver Spring, Maryland show, man, it's like a hop, skip, and jump from Washington, D.C. So if you're in the nation's capital, in fact, if you're Barack Obama, come see our fucking show. 8 p.m., Silver Spring, Maryland, man. Jay and Silent Bob are going to get old as motherfuckers at the Fillmore right near Washington, D.C. Tickets available at csmod.com, S-E-E-S-M-O-D.com. October 19th, the bird's going to fly us right back, me and Jay, right back to Los Angeles, on his back, first class and shit. No bird going to tell me to buy two fucking seats or anything like that. He's going to take us home to Los Angeles. We're going to do Jay and Silent Bob get old right there at the Love. It's 10 p.m. Next night, October 20th, bird gonna fly me and ralph to vegas and we're gonna do hollywood babylon at the tropicana man at the laugh factory october 20th tickets available at csmod.com yes that's right bird i always gotta plug october 27th uh you get a double blast of ralph and me and hollywood babylon type action at the lovitz man there's two shows two 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 shows man 8 p.m hollywood babylon and 10 p.m stick around man we're gonna do babylon comic-con theater 10 p.m. Ralph going to perform Cacophony 3. Batman Cacophony 3. That's right, man. He gives it hard, man. Ralph's good up there. Come see it. Two shows. October 27th. Come at 8 o'clock for the first show. Stick around at 10 o'clock for the next show. Uh, In November, I'm heading your way. Buffalo, Connecticut. I like to say Connecticut because there's C in there. South Carolina, North Carolina, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, man. Y'all get shows in November. Go to CSMOD dot com for details good times to be had with the smodco crew brand new free podcast that i'm in this week from smodcast.com new smodcast with Moj, the end of the emo kev saga new babylon babylon 100 from reno new fat man on batman Diedrich bader from brave and the bold part two and new smoothie makers uh, part one with scott derrickson from sinister only at smodcast.com
Hello, this is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. I'm just going to tell her how I feel. I'm going to let her know that I love her. 
despite her. Camel toe. Maybe I don't really care. Camel toe. I'll take you anywhere. Camel toe. Take you shopping by your pants to fit. Camel toe. Baby, I'll over it. Camel toe. Let's go play Mario Kart. Camel toe. Baby, you've stolen my heart. Camel toe. Let's go back to my place. Camel toe. Stick that camel toe in my face. That was Carly and Donnie with Camel Toad. Uh, Carly and Donnie are this fabulous duet. One's a lesbian, one's straight, and uh, they're this amazing singer-songwriter duo, and uh, they just, uh, they're really, really good songwriters, and they do really, you've got to go see them live. Live is amazing. I, I'm pretty, I don't have their website in front of me, but I'm guessing it's carlyanddonnie.com. If not, it's C-A-R-L-I. And Donnie, D-O-N-I. Oh, let's see what it is. It is carlyanddonnie.com. Oh, it's C-A-R-L-I-E-A-N-D-D-O-N-I. Carly and Donnie. Oh, my God, you guys. Fell in love with them. My dear friend Rocco Urbisi manages them. And uh, uh, Logan saw them earlier this week and got some some of their tracks from them. And so we'll be playing them today. We'll be having some fun with Carly and Donnie. They'll, they'll be our musical guests. Uh, so welcome, Carly and Donnie. Welcome to the Waking from the American Dream show. I like doing my fake NPR voice. It just makes me feel very smart and, I don't know, erudite or something. Uh, something else that makes me feel really smart... The space shuttle's in my neighborhood. I know it's been at the airport for weeks, but the thing is tomorrow it's really going to be in my neighborhood because it's going to be going two miles an hour through my neighborhood. I live by LAX. Yes, thank you very much. And tomorrow it is actually going to be parked from 4 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the parking lot behind the Bed Bath & Beyond. And now I understand what the beyond is. (laughs) It's It's finally clear. The beyond is space. It's, you know, people think the beyond is like the stuff, the crappy stuff near the, near the, um, uh, cash registers, the candy and shit like that and the candles. No, that's not the beyond. The beyond is space itself. Of course, my husband calls it bed, bath in Beijing because there is absolutely nothing in that store that is not made in China. I guarantee you, good luck finding something. If you find something, please let me know. So I will go purchase it because we go in and we, we really try to be good. We try to buy American and support our local jobs and all of that. And sometimes you want to buy German because it's really, you know, the great high quality. Nothing, nothing in there is, is made by anyone else, but lovely, lovely humans from China. So bed, bath in Beijing. Uh, everyone welcome. It's, oh, you know what it is today? The date is 10, 11, 12. Ah, you know, I'm a freaky synchronicity number girl and I love shit like that. My dad would have loved that too. My dad and I had a thing. I guess, I guess he, I got this from my dad was he was always into numbers and he would like track his hotel room numbers and there was always threes in our numbers because we were big on the number three because there was three people in our family. And so, um, he would have loved 10, 11, 12, you know, and I don't know what it all means, but I just think it's really groovy to write that down on a piece of paper. And I like that Howard Bloom is going to be our guest today on 10, 11, 12, because Howard's into freaky shit. He's into space. Oh, my God. I can't wait to get to him. But we're not getting to him yet. We still got a few more minutes. Uh, I wanted to talk about some other things. Uh, so, yeah. So we've got the space shuttle in the neighborhood. Very exciting. You can feel the buzz. In fact, the Internet was running uh, slowly earlier, and Logan and I uh, thought maybe it was because the space shuttle was pulling in the vibe of the Internet 
um, you know, in some way, the vortex of the the space shuttle is just so amazing. It can pull everything in towards it, including making the Internet slow in my house. Um, And of course, as Louis C.K. talked about, you know, people complain when their fucking smartphones take forever and he has to remind them, you know, it's going to space and back. And then, of course, the space shuttle really has been to space and back a bunch of times. Oh, it's so fucking cool. I'm so excited. I feel like a little kid. I'm probably going to get up really early in the morning to go see it before all the crowds are there. And there, oh, this is the other funny thing. LA is saying, oh, there's no, you won't be able to be on the sidewalk when it goes by. We'll be controlling that. I'm like, yeah, good luck. It's going through LA two miles an hour and you're going to actually control people from looking at the space shuttle on the sidewalk. Uh, I just can't wait to see that, that mess. Someone's going to be shot and killed by the LAPD by the end of two days. (laughs) Well, at least under the old Bill Gates LAPD, they certainly would. Um, So this week was a very productive week. Uh, I woke up Monday deciding that I needed to make a list of shit going. Like I got way too many projects and things going on. I don't know, maybe it's something about fall and autumn and then school starts and you got to get your shit together. But I did. I came out and I used my dry erase board and I made lists and shit is getting done. And then I was so exhausted from making the list. (laughs) And then I had a big meeting on Tuesday also, big creative meeting on Tuesday. So exhausted that I could do nothing on Wednesday. I was like empty. Like, I, I think I shot my wad for the whole week. I'm just, I'm emptied out. I can only do so much. That's partly what I want to talk to Howard about. I mean, he he writes like these 500 page fucking books every once every two years. How the fuck does he, where does, I don't know. I don't understand the energy. I, you know, I, I, I have one creative meeting and write five lists and, and I need a vacation. I'm a sad soul. I'm a sad example of a human being. Oh, well. But hey, I have fun, at least. Um, and here's another thing about um, being efficient and getting your shit done and all that kind of stuff. I had this great conversation today with a friend of mine. And he was talking, um, he's been in 12 step programs for a long time. And he's got, you know, uh, you know, he's been dealing with and he's, you know, all fine and everything. like that. But he, he knows the whole 12 step thing. And he knows all the signals and everything. And we were talking about how Twitter and Facebook, and I've talked about it here before, is really is can really become as bad. Like, like you're going down your slippery slope of addiction with Twitter and and social media sometimes. And uh, he said that Patton Oswald had said something like, um, "If Mark Twain was alive with Twitter, he'd be on Twitter." But of course, then we wouldn't have Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> and um, you know what? Take that to heart, people. I know we love to hang out on Twitter together and we do the Facebook and everything. But if you're a creative soul and you're getting uh, creativity on Twitter is fun and getting the instant gratification of an audience retweeting you is great. But when and I've done this, I understand what it's like. You tweet something and you think it's clever and you have to go off and do something. And then you get this ache in your chest like, I just have to see who's retweeted me and how many new followers I have. It's a sickness, people. We really do need meetings. I'm thinking of maybe starting a religious cult around this to help people recover from their social media addiction. Of course, I'll be advertising it, promoting it on social media. So that'll be, that's a good cult thing to do, right? Yeah, just kind of feeding the beast while you're trying to heal the beast. Yeah, I think I've got a, I've got a good model here. I'll make an affiliate program for other people. (laughs) You can put it on their websites. (laughs) 
Oh, my God. So I, I have a feeling that I literally am just talking to my podcasters today because I understand that there is some sort of, I don't know, two white men on a stage. I'm guessing they're both wearing suits. There's an audience. Uh, there's a moderator or two or I don't know, maybe there's a panel this time. Hopefully it's not Jim Lehrer. Bless his soul. Uh, but there's a vice president's uh, there's a vice president and a wannabe vice president on a stage right now. I hope my husband's TiVoing it. I don't know if he is or not. He's probably spacing out and watching something. He's watching Wheeler Dealers is what he's watching. He loves that show. It's the British. They go and find a car and fix it up because my husband's addicted to that stuff. Because if we had a gazillion dollars, that's what he would do all day. And I would love that. If I had a gazillion dollars, I would give him a gazillion dollars so he could just be fixing up really cool cars all day. Um, so, yeah, the so debates are going on. Um, hoping this one goes a little better than the, than the last one. Yeah, the you know, we were all getting a little smug, weren't we? Oh, he's going to do fine. He's eight points ahead. He's Ohio. He's ahead in Ohio. He's going to, he's getting gaining ground in Nevada. I don't know, guys. I remember uh, the fucking Al Gore, George Bush night, the election night where we stayed up till two, three in the morning waiting for them to call it. And then they called it and then we went to sleep and they woke up and they uncalled it. And, and, and then I remember facing that reality that George W was going to be president. And, um, <clears throat> Although technically, I guess he wasn't, according to my dad, because my dad called him governor. Uh, but uh, I really don't want to wake up to a Romney America. <laughs> you know, uh, Logan, our dear Logan here, is a recovered, recovering Mormon, I believe. Is it recovering? I've used that phrase. Uh, you, yeah. Have you fully recovered yet? No. No. Uh, uh, That'll be a lifetime of recovery. It, there's much worse things to be recovering from. <laughs> I just want to put that out there. I'm not complaining. <laughs> But Logan, if if Romney does become president, we will be leaning on you more to give us some insight into um, what are what some of the new traditions and habits will have to all kind of you know take on as a Romney Mormon America is born. Yes, uh, I I think there'll be Romney strikes me as a guy who's like he reminds me of nobody I've ever met in the church. <laughs> Wow, really? <laughs> I mean, and there, I, I knew, I know some Romneys. We, I went to church with some, they're probably related. Uh, all very nice. No doubt they're related. Oh, no, no doubt they're related. <laughs> probably. <laughs> Who knows? But, um, but no, I, I, uh, I have, uh, I have very little to compare, uh, this, like, just hollow eyed, dark, yeah. Emp- empty vessel that is Mitt Romney yes. with anybody else. It seems like the Mormonism plays very little, little into it, right. what it, he's going to do. He's interested like in himself. Yeah, I think he used the church probably and, and all of that to kind of practice being powerful guy you know yeah. get power in the church and this is what it feels like and yeah, be I, a big guy on on the campus type of thing definitely the church definitely has like a, a very strong business sense and community sense and they're very um they believe in their own power yeah you know, certainly so well it's, a, that, as a, it's that fabulous underwear yes <laughs> how could you not believe in your power if you're wearing that stuff <laughs> i have to say i'm very disappointed in that underwear i really did imagine it as glittery it's glittery. Yeah, I did. They said magic. And when you say magic to me, I'm thinking unicorns and rainbows and shit. And I pictured glittery, like glittery, like, like it's like, oh, yeah, kind of no, underwear. No, not, that's the thing no, people no, no. don't Very realize. Plain. It's more boring than your underwear. It's, I promise. It's, it's beyond boring because it's covering up more parts of your body than you could ever cover up, even with clothing, possibly. 
Absolutely. Yeah. No. <laughs> you're, you're not People... wearing sh- shorts over that underwear. <laughs> right. No. The, the the women in the church actually wear more clothing because yeah. of the underwear. Yeah. And just because they have modesty standards. They do. Yes. Unlike uh, the rest of us whores here in America. <laughs> Although I'm wearing a nice skirt today, so I'm feeling kind of Mormonish. Feeling a little uh, orthodox something here today. I, I could go to I could go to nice orthodox Jewish girl camp today with my little skirt here. Uh, all right, people. I think we're getting close. Oh, we're getting a little closer here. We're going to play a little music, and uh, when we come back, uh, I'm going to introduce you again to Howard Bloom, who's been on the show before, and we're going to talk about his new book, The God Problem. But for now, right now, uh, you know what? Uh, we're going to go different. Oh, we're going to do little Carly and Donnie. This will not be about the the VJJ, although there is another song here about the VJJ. We may finish up with that. This one's called, uh, uh, yeah, let's do Gangster Waitress.
mistake when I decided it's time to go on my smoke break. You say you want dessert, but yo, you're gonna have to wait beside your fat ass. Don't need any more cheesecake. You know what? I'm done. I'm going home. Gonna get me a fresh bag with tips and get stoned. Just a day in the life of a waitress like me. Putting it down for all my homies in the serving industry. Cause I'm a gangster waitress. We don't sing no birthday song. I'm a gangster waitress. On break, we hit the bar. I'm a gangster waitress. Six Once again, that was Carly and Donnie, uh, this time with Gangsta Waitress. Uh, check them out at carlyanddonnie.com. So I'm so excited to have my guest. I've had him on before. Uh, Howard Bloom has been called the Darwin, Einstein, Newton, and Freud of the 21st century by Britain's Channel 4 TV. You know, just a few names that you know. Uh, Bloom calls his field mass behavior and explains that his area of study includes everything from the mass behavior of quarks to the mass behavior of human beings. He's the founder of three international scientific groups, the Group Selection Squad, the International Paleopsychology Project, the Space Development Steering Committee, which includes astronauts Buzz Aldrin and Edgar Mitchell. By the way, my mother went to rehab with Buzz Aldrin. Bloom comes from the world of cosmology, theoretical physics, and microbiology. But he did 20 years of field work in the world of business and pop culture, where he tested his hypothesis in the real world. In 1968, Bloom turned down four graduate fellowships and embarked on what he calls his Voyage of the Beagle, an expedition to the dark underbelly where new myths, new historical movements, and new shifts in mass emotion are made. The result? Bloom generated $28 billion in revenues for companies like Sony, Disney, Pepsi, Coke, Warner Brothers. He accomplishes by taking profits out of the picture and focusing on passion and soul. He applied the same principle to star making, helping build the careers of people like Prince, Michael Jackson, Bob Marley, Billy Joel, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, who I just saw at the bowl. Oh, my God, I didn't even talk to you guys about that. David Byrne, on and on and on, about 100 other people. He is the author of five books, a few of which I've actually read. The Lucifer Principle, A Scientific Expedition into the Forces of History. Global Brain, The Evolution of Mass Mind from the Big Bang to the 21st Century. How I Accidentally Started the 60s, uh, The Genius of the Beast, A Radical Revision of Capitalism, and now The God Problem, How a Godless Cosmos Creates. I'm just going to read a little excerpt here from The God Problem, and then we will jump in. Bloom says, we've set aside will, purpose, and persistence in a magic enclosure and have claimed that the qualities of push and stick to do not belong to nature. They belong solely to us human beings. Will, compulsion, drive, and unrelenting determination. These are virtues that we say belong only to conscious entities. We've been certain that we can understand the cosmos based solely on material things, but we've missed the astonishing capacity of immaterial things. Howard Bloom, welcome. 
<laughs> That's a wonderful quote, Kelly. I love that. How are you? I'm very good, and I'm so happy you're here. And I've been, uh, you were kind enough to send me a PDF of this book, I don't know, maybe four or five months ago, and I've been slowly eating my way through it. And then just in the last couple of days, read like the last hundred pages where you just bring the whole vision together and 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 put it on a platter and so that we can drink it in and uh i am i'm so excited about this book because you really do tackle things that i myself have been pondering since i was about 15 years old so um i I didn't ponder them the way you did certainly but i'm very exciting so what was it that what was the fire that was lit underneath you to actually tackle this and write the God problem. Well, you know, you get in, I got, nobody wanted me in my hometown, Buffalo, New York. Absolutely no kids would have anything to do with me. If there was a party going on in somebody's backyard, they would actually, if they saw me coming, send a, a kid down the driveway to tell me I was not allowed to come any closer oh. than the sidewalk. <laughs> so, and, and at the age of 10, I found myself in my big living room overlooking a, a park, a, a wonderful park with this book in my hands. Actually, it was very dark in there because there were these big velvet curtains. It was a very solemn kind of moment at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And there's this book in my hands, Kelly, that I've never seen before and never saw again. And the book says, um, the first two rules of science are these. The truth at any price, including the price of your life. And it gives the example of Galileo, and it gives it all wrong. It doesn't tell you that Galileo didn't tell me that Galileo was a friend of the Pope, that even though he was scared to death of the Inquisition and being burned alive at the stake, it says he would have gladly gone to the stake in order to support his truth. Well, that isn't true. He made a (laughs) compromise with the Pope Mm. and lived under house arrest for 10 years after saying that everything he'd ever written was wrong. Mm. Thank God the book told me the mythological version, where (laughs) Galileo had been willing to go to the stake for his truth, because I needed to hear that at the Mm. age of 10. And the second rule of science was look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. Look at things that you and everyone around you take for granted, and then proceed from there. And it gave the example of Anton von Leeuwenhoek, who took a magnifying glass, which was high-tech at the time, and he'd been using it in order to see the thread count on the fabrics that he was selling, because he was a draper, and instead had turned it on objects like, well, human sperm. And what had he seen in human sperm? He had seen these little wriggling creatures with tails moving around very actively, seemingly with a will of their own. He called them animalcules. It was the beginning of microbiology. Of course, what the book didn't tell me is that he had even more courage to look at things right under his nose than I imagined when I was 10 years old, (laughs) because guess where he got the human sperm? (laughs) (laughs) So at any rate, it gave me these two ideals to live up to, and, and all of a sudden I felt like I had a home, because... I was in the presence of Galileo and von Leeuwenhoek and Einstein and people like that, and since most of them were dead, they didn't have the ability to send someone down the driveway to tell me not to get near where they were playing. <laughs> they, they had to accept me. They couldn't say no. So tagging around with these guys, I realized something when I was 12 years old, or 13, well, I was 12 and a half, 
And I'd been in science for what seemed like all my life, you know, two and a half years <laughs> when you're 10 to 12 years old. It was yes. a big deal. Yes. And, and all of a sudden I realized it was an atheist. I mean, it was really a scene, Kelly, because my parents were trying to drag me to high holiday services, which are the most important things in the Jewish New Year. They got me into their Blue Fraser somehow. When they got to Richmond Avenue, where the synagogue was, they tried to drag me out of the car. My parents, imagine this, holding me by the ankles and trying to pull me out of the car while my hands are on the door frame. <laughs> um, and, and I had a revelation. I realized... God, my parents take God really seriously, mm. but I'm a stone-cold atheist, so mm. for me, there is no God. Wow. Every tribe I've ever read about, and by now, two and a half years of reading two books a day, I read about a lot of tribes, and every tribe I've ever read about has believed in gods. So if the gods are not in the heavens, and the gods are not in the earth, and the gods are not in stones and trees, where the hell are they? Mm. Well, they're inside of us. Mm. So the job became dummy. Wake up. Okay, first, the truth at any price, including the price of your life, and then look at things that everyone around you take for granted. Look at the things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before. Well, the thing that was right under my nose was the thing right behind my nose, the gods. And the other, so one task became find the gods inside of us, which is why I eventually went into the rock and roll business and popular culture (laughs) and all of that kind of stuff, (laughs) seeking the gods inside of us. But the other problem is a major problem. For an atheist mm. and a scientific atheist at that, it's if no God said, let there be light, how did light come to be? Mm-hmm. If no God said, if no God parted the heavens and the seas, how in the world did we get heavens and seas? How did this entire universe come to be? And that was the root of the God problem. Wow. Is, it's I mean, a, that's the big question. Yeah. It's a really it, big question. It, it really is the big question. And I've been um, watching this great series called Closer to Truth on, um, I think it's on PBS. And this guy, he's a, he's a physicist, he's a scientist, but he's also someone who struck, you know, kind of struggles with his belief in God or not or whatever. And he's been going around asking these questions. And one of the episodes was about this, you know, so how, how did it all start? Like, where's the flick of the switch, you know? And, and, and so you, it's amazing, Howard, once again, you have taken this journey in this 500 plus pages where you start with human history and weave together all of these kind of things and and what this is what you do so well you look at things that are right underneath our nose and say let's look at it differently whoops kelly i'm missing your voice oh you there hello yep i'm here okay so um so yeah so really this book is your answer to how do we get something from nothing yes and it's a big i mean it remains a mystery but in order to get at the mystery, from another point of view, I turn just about everything we know on its head. You do. And because it turns out, you know, we have this system of logic. We've had it for 2,300 years, and it's one of the big things we take for granted. It's one of the big things right under our nose that we don't tend to question, our system of logic. And guess what? Our system of logic doesn't work for the universe we live in. It works to a certain limited extent. It works enough to get uh, astronauts into space, people on the moon, um, uh, Elon Musk's new SpaceX capsule unloading cargo at this mm-hmm. very moment to the Internet Space Station. All that stuff is just terrific. But think about this. Um, what's called celestial mechanics, the stuff of how in the world you get an international space station to orbit the Earth and how in the world you get an Earth to, or an Earth to orbit a sun, that's dumb stuff. That's just stones. 
That's how stones operate, (laughs) big stones, when they relate to each other. Well, this is a universe a lot more complicated than stones. But even stones defy logic. And the the story, and one of the stories that's got a problem is that I take you to a coffee table at the beginning of the universe, an outdoor cafe table before there's been a universe. And you are a wildly imaginative soul. And I am a crusty old fart. Um, I'm just a cantankerous conservative. And we've been sitting around for so, mo- so long, I mean, even though there's no time, um, that we've, we've drunk more coffee than, than the entire uh, <laughs> output of Brazil. And all of a sudden, you come up with this crazy idea, a really nutcase idea. You see that, see that little spot over there? Of course, there is no there because there's no time and space yet. But still, see that little spot over there? I predict it. Any second now, it's you saying this, Kelly, that um, there's going to be a pinprick infinitely smaller than a pinprick prick and that pinprick infinitely smaller than a pinprick is going to explode with two, with two things we've never seen before. It's going to explode with three things, space, time, and energy. It's going to come unfurling like a handkerchief on a growth binge um, at speeds that are utterly beyond. You know, <laughs> give me a break already. We've been here since as long as there's been coffee. And there never has been a pinprick smaller than a pinprick. There never has been time. There never has been space. And there never will be. Just think about it logically. One plus one equals two. Right. Um, add nothing to nothing. <laughs> and what do you get? You get nothing, Kelly. It's so obvious. I don't know why you can't see reason. And all of a sudden, whammo. Mm. The pinprick infinitely smaller than a pinprick appears approximately where you said it would, whooshing with these new qualities called time and space. Well, we sit around for a while. Actually, we sit around for um, 10 with 32 zeros after it, uh, (laughs) a 10 with 32 zeros after a sliver of a second. But for us, that's forever. And we're sitting there watching this this giant manifold, this Einsteinian manifold of of, uh, time and space unfurling like the biggest sail you've ever seen in your life. And you come up with another one of your nutcase predictions. And you say, I predict that in the same way that that raindrops precipitate from a storm cloud any second now, that time, space, and speed that we're seeing in front of us, that time, space, and energy is going to precipitate in things. Now, Kelly, look. Give me a break. You got lucky the first time. But let's be logical. Add time, space, and speed to more time, space, and speed. And what do you get? Garbage in, garbage out. One plus one equals two. You get time, space, and speed. Period. And all of a sudden, whammo. In a flash, there are gazillions of these new objects. The first objects that have ever been. The very first things. They're called quarks and, and leptons. And so these quarks are what you talk about and what science talks about in an emergent property. Yes, apparently they are an emergent property, but what an emergent property is turns out to be a mystery. When I started looking into this, I, I kept running across the name of a guy named George Henry Luz, having come up with the idea of emergent properties. I never heard of George Henry Luz. You never heard of George Henry Luz. Never. And, then nobody listening to us has ever heard of George Henry Luz. It was not easy to find out who George Henry Luz was, but it turned out that George Henry Luz was part of a little knot of people, one of the most fascinating knots of people in human history. George Henry Luz, one day, okay, George Henry Luz was this kid. His, his mother believed in free love. This is 1835. Um, and Hitler was a love addict. So 
she had actually with a, um, a comedian who also wrote poetry. I mean, you know, if you're a, a rational middle-class woman, you certainly do not do that. <laughs> and then she had the baby. And she was a single mother in an era when single mothering was not exactly what it is today. It's not exactly as well-known as it is today. So she raised George Henry, her son, George Henry, in, in France and England. And at the age of 17, George Henry Luce, who was precociously bright, wrote a poem in a short story. Uh-oh. Right? Made a literary figure he could find, sent it off to everybody in sight, and a guy picked up on it who had introduced Keats to Shelley, who had co-founded a magazine with Lord Byron, and who had written a poem called Abu Ben Adam, May His Tribe Increase, Awoke One Night from a Deep Dream of Peace. Ever heard of that one? <laughs> no. <laughs> His, his name was Lee Hunt, and Lee Hunt took George Henry Luce under his wing and decided to introduce him around. Well, he decided to take him over to see Thomas Carlyle. You know, Thomas Carlyle is a great social critic who invented the phrase the dismal science mm-hmm. for, um, for economics and who invented the great man theory of history and just a brilliant, astonishing man. So they go over to uh, Thomas Carlyle's house, and there's this person about 17 years older than George Henry Lewis, about 35 years old, sobbing on the couch in a hysterical fit. And they wonder why this person is sobbing and who the hell is. Well, it turns out his name is John Stuart Mill. If you look at the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, it will tell you that John Stuart Mill is the greatest philosopher of the 19th century. And why is John Stuart Mill in a paroxysm of sobbing, getting tears all over this leather couch? Um, because John Stuart Mill grew up hooked on an event that had taken place just a generation before his teen years. When he hit puberty, you know, we all get involved in something. Mm-hmm. We imprint on something mm-hmm. that, that, that calls on our idealism. And he had imprinted on the, on, the, on the ideals, the aspirations of the French Revolution, which was not that far in, in, in the past. Mm-hmm. And once he got to know Thomas Carlyle, Thomas Carlyle was working on a masterpiece. He was working on a book on the French Revolution. And the French Revolution meant everything to John Stuart Mill. So John Stuart Mill begged um, Thomas Carlyle to lend him a copy of the manuscript. Now remember, this is 1835. You do not have backup discs. <laughs> you do not have carbonite. <laughs> You don't, you don't even have carbon paper or anything else of the sort. When you, make a cop, when you write a manuscript, that's the only copy there is. And Thomas Carlyle lent his only copy there was of this book that he was writing on the French Revolution to a John Stuart Mill. And John Stuart Mill took it home. And now, you know, you need light to read, right? Oh, and what did they use for light in those days? Open flames, candles, gas lamps. Um, and, and the fire in the fireplace. So guess what happened to the manuscript? Oh my the God. one and only manuscript. Um, it, it burned to ash. Mm. And that's why John Stuart Mill was in paroxysms. Well, okay, so this is an interesting way to meet John Stuart Mill. And John Stuart <laughs> Mill and, and Henry Luce became friends, and they hung out with a crowd that included uh, Herbert Spencer, um, what's-his-name Huxley, Thomas Henry Huxley, mm. the guy who would become Darwin's bulldog, mm. um, and a woman named Marianne Evans, um, who, who they all got together and tried to convince. She was a magazine editor, and they tried to convince her to try to write novels. And eventually they succeeded, and she did, but she took on a man's name, and because she wanted to write serious philosophical novels, including psychology and physiology, the hot things of the time, 
And so she took on a man's name so that she wouldn't be disrespected, and she called herself George Eliot. Mm. So this was the little group that uh, George Henry Luce hung around with. Now, there was a mystery. There was this new thing called chemistry. And chemists in the last 50 years had managed to do two things. They'd found one form of air that you got when you burned uh, mercury with uh, a beam from the sun um, concentrated through a magnifying glass. It was a gas. It looked just like any other air in the world. You put it in a bell jar and you put a mouse in it, and the mouse got wildly excited and jumped up and down and lived longer than normal mice. Hmm. Tried to breathe it yourself, which is who found it, and wow, did you feel good. And there was another gas that they found through another chemical means that looked exactly the same. It's a gas. You know, put it in a bell jar. It's transparent. You can see through it. You can put your hand in the bell jar and put your hand through it. It looks exactly the same as this other gas, except put a mouse in that, and it dies. Okay, now let's think logically for a second, Kelly. If you take one bell jar of one of these gases that looks absolutely identical to a bell jar of the other gas, and you add these two gases, remember, one plus one equals two, garbage in, garbage out. Right. What should you get? A gas that looks just like the two of them. Yes, twice as much gas. Yes. Two bell jars worth of gas, right. right? Okay, now think about this. Take a match. They did have matches at the time. Take a match, put it in, and what does the match add? Warmth, right? So all you should get is a warmer gas. Warmth plus one gas plus another gas equals a warmer gas. Right. Right? Logic. No. You get an explosion that shatters the bell jar. That's ridiculously surprising. How the hell did that happen? <laughs> and what's more, you get this weird element. You can touch it with your finger the way that you can touch your laptop or your telephone, um, but you can't, and you, you can put your finger through it, which you cannot exactly do with your laptop or your telephone. And if it manages to fall off the table and get into your pants, it produces awkwardly disappears, but produces very visible stuff. That will keep you from getting until it's dry because you don't want to embarrass yourself in front of your friends. Or it will soak into the rug. It's called water, liquid water. What? Wow. You add two gases <laughs> and you put in a little bit of heat and you get an explosion and water? Wow. How the hell did that happen? So George Henry Luce and John Stuart Mill were sitting around thinking about this and. George Henry Luce and John Stuart Mill came to the conclusion that this is a kind of process that we have no way of accounting for with our standard forms of logic, mathematics, or science. Mm. And John Stuart Mill came up with a bunch of names so complicated for it that I can't even remember them. <laughs> and they died. Nobody ever paid any attention to them, just like I can't remember them. Mm. And I just wrote a whole book about this. <laughs> and, um, and George Henry Luce who nobody's ever heard of, came up with another name, Emergence. Mm -hmm. Well, Emergence not only stuck, but in the 1920s and 1930s, in the borderland between science and religion, there were movements based on emergence and emergent properties. Mm -hmm. But they posed a problem. John Stuart Mill and George Henry Luce posed a problem. They said, basically, until we get a math and a science that can predict the explosion and the gas, our math and science are not up to snuff. They're yeah. not up to doing, they're not up to seeing things right under our nose. And explaining them, much less. And they were right, it's what? It's 177 years later. And they posed this problem. 
how do you get a math that manages or a science that manages to predict these weird outcomes, yeah. these creative outcomes, these wildly unexpected well, outcomes? And, and the outcomes that clearly, I mean, when you look, when you consider evolution, just the evolution of the cosmos, let alone the evolution of biology and, and the life force of man on, on Earth, but just the ev- evolution itself – that evolution is clearly dependent on that it 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 seems to have brought things together that create this third thing that can't be predicted and then that third thing has some major impact on the next step of the direction of everything absolutely you're absolutely right all of evolution depends on this and we could go through we could go back to our cafe table at the beginning of the cosmos and let you dream on and let me be cantankerous and critical. <laughs> and you would dream up the idea of atoms. You would dream up the idea of galaxies. You would dream up the idea of stars. You would dream up the idea of molecules. And you would dream up the idea of mega molecules that actually manage to make copies of themselves and produce life. And Kelly, I would think you were a lunatic. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. At every step of the way. Uh, because yeah. the logically, we inherited our logic from Aristotle. And this book tells the story. It's a hidden story. It's an untold story of how in the world we got this logic and why in the world it's so inadequate. And we continue to stick to the logic of Aristotle without ever stepping back and questioning it. Well, so and, this book... Ha- and that's this one book of... Ha- just let me yes. put this in. This book has five heresies. Yes. And the five heresies are A does not equal A. Well, you know, the standard Aristotelian syllogism that is used as a mantra by uh, Ayn Rand's followers is if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Mm -hmm. But what happens if A doesn't even equal A? (laughs) (laughs) So that's heresy number one. Heresy number two, one plus one does not equal two. We've just illustrated that um, in these little tales of the cosmos. Heresy number three is that the uh, the most sacred law, one of the most sacred laws in science, the second law of thermodynamics, the idea of entropy, the idea that all things fall apart, that all things tend toward disorder, so wrong. It is absurd, so wrong, it is hard to believe that scientists have ever believed in it, and I do believe it to this very day. Mm. Um, heresy number three is that randomness is not as random as you think. This is not a six monkeys at six typewriters <laughs> typing out the works of Shakespeare universe. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Far from it. Mm-hmm. And heresy number five is that information theory, the hot new theory of the last 60 years, which people are obsessed with, um, especially in and around science, is not about In fact, it totally misses the mark. And understand those five heresies, and you begin to get a handle, a different way of looking at cosmic creativity. It still remains a whomping, huge, super shock. Um, it, it still remains a mystery, but you've got, hopefully, you end up with a whole new way of looking at the possibilities of solving that mystery. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I love, first of all, I love anyone who's willing to be a heretic. Um. <laughs> So I love that, and and they're burning me at the stake right now. We speak. I'm sure. I'm sure someone. I'm sure someone's got it planned. Uh, and one of the things I did uh, in these these five, you know, heresies or blasphemies are are such a great way to kind of organize this. Um, and the the one thing I did 
love in this book is is especially when you started talking about how there are these these metaphors that you know these metaphorical ways of looking at things and that and that math itself is a metaphor and and that equations you know and and this way of thinking and that it's like how dare you howard say that all of this that we're looking at is just a way of representing something else. And it's not the absolute goddamn center of the goddamn universe truth of it all. And that there's actually other ways of accessing the truth or the implicate order, as you talk about the, the order underneath it all without having to use equation. And, and I was just fascinated by that, that there is, first of all, that, that human minds have figured this out <laughs> and that, but, but I'd love to talk a little bit about not so much that part, but just this whole idea of pattern of ur patterns and metaphors and, and, and how you saw like that there is this kind of basic way of looking at things that uh, is kind of essential. And it reminded me very much of Carl Jung and his archetypes Right. And, 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 you know, at the beginning of our, of the show here, you even said that the gods are inside of us. And that's what Jung, right. Jung said that, you know, that was, that was his big proclamation. The gods are dead. They're all living in our psyches. And well, let's dive down to metaphor for a second. Yeah. I, it was, okay, doing, re- writing this book, researching this book was an enormous adventure, a really enormous adventure. And um, it was Thanksgiving or something like that, and I had gone off to Buffalo, New York, to see my family. And um, and I take buses at night because buses are supposed to have Wi-Fi and buses off are supposed to have electricity, so you can work on your laptop all night. That's my work hours mm-hmm. is seven o'clock at night until three o'clock in the morning. And and I knew I, I learned that buses are unreliable. Only fifty percent of them actually have electricity and Wi-Fi. So I'd done something in case my, um, my Wi-Fi connection wouldn't work. I had downloaded the entirety of Aristotle's posterior analytics. <laughs> Just some light reading, Howard. Yes, light reading. Oh and, um, and indeed, there was no Wi-Fi on the bus. So I was forced to read Aristotle's posterior analytics. Kelly, it was an astonishing experience because somewhere around page 178, I found two pages that contained the roots of our current logic and the roots of our current scientific system, all of it. Hmm. And it included the idea that if you break the things down to their elements, you can try to find, and here he grabbed, Aristotle grabbed a metaphor from the way we rule human societies, he grabbed the metaphor of laws, which rule over people. So he said, if you break things down to their elements, you can find that those elements obey laws. That's a metaphor. Mm-hmm. And he came up, it was Aristotle who came up with the phrase elementary laws, which we take for granted and never examine. Hmm. But again, it's based on a metaphor and an assumption that you can explain things by breaking them down to their parts. Now, if we broke down that hydrogen gas in a bell jar and an oxygen gas in a bell jar to their parts and figured out the exact behavior of an oxygen molecule or oxygen atom and a hydrogen atom, would we understand the explosion and would we understand the water? Not in your life. Hmm. Not at all. Not hmm. a bit. So this, we call this 
approach reductionism, and it goes back to Aristotle, and it's one of the things we haven't really questioned in 2,200 frigging years. Yep. There's another statement in there, um, and it says, metaphor is unscientific. Well, I got news for you, Aristotle. <laughs> if metaphor is unscientific, why did you just use the metaphor of laws? Yes, good and point. A, and you know one of the biggest mysteries and debates in theoretical physics, which is considered the queen of the sciences, mm. the most scientific of the sciences, is, is light a wave or is light a particle? Mm-hmm. Well, I got news for you. A wave is a metaphor. Mm. We take it from those things we see sloshing around in the seas. Um, and a particle is a metaphor. If you look at the origin of the word, it means uh, take a crumb, use your spoon, smash it down to the smallest little object you can find, take the smallest little objects you get out of the smashing process, mash that down, and a particle is the smallest part that you can arrive at. That's mm. a metaphor, for God's sakes. Right. And interference patterns, which are the big deal in quantum physics, that's a metaphor, too. <laughs> it tells the story of how that metaphor developed with a guy named Thomas Young, who was an eye surgeon at a time when eye surgeons could do experiments in physics, and it was taken seriously. Um, who saw two ducks. He, he worked at Oxford. He saw two ducks on the pond in Oxford um, in parallel with each other, and he saw how the ripples from the ducks, the, the wakes from the ducks, overlapped each other and did something very strange. So he built an apparatus that allowed him to do something that Leonardo da Vinci had done. So first, Leonardo da Vinci. This is 400, 300 years earlier. Mm-hmm. Leonardo da Vinci was fascinated by water, absolutely fascinated. He was a canal builder, and he built canals all over Italy. He brought a lot of water to Italy. And he liked to watch water in canals, and he liked to watch water in the sea, and he liked to watch water in ponds. And one day, Leonardo took two stones and dropped them into a still pond of water simultaneously and watched the ripples. And here's the astonishing thing that that Leonardo saw. You drop these two stones, when the ripples collide with each other, they should destroy each other, right? Remember, the third, law, the, the third heresy, the second law of thermodynamics, entropy. All things tend toward disorder, right? So if two roiling things roil into each other, they should create more royal. In other <laughs> words, they should create more mess, right? at least according to the idea of entropy. No, somehow, even though they interpenetrated each other, the waves maintained a clear identity, and the rings of waves maintained their ringness. Mm-hmm. They still looked like rings on a target, mm-hmm. despite the fact that they were colliding with each other. So the miracle that, that Leonardo saw was things managing to retain an identity despite opposition. Hmm. That was a pretty big one, and science really hasn't delved into it appropriately at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, okay, it's, uh, it's 200 years later, and Thomas Young sees these ducks and creates an apparatus that allows him to lower two weights into a pond or into a, a pool. Uh, it's like a, a big laundry basin that he's got with a glass bottom so that he can shine a candle through it, and you can see the reflections, the ripples on the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he drops these two things in, and he sees something that even Leonardo, the master of observation, missed. 
And that is when these two rings of ripples intersect each other, not only do the waves retain their identity, not only do the rings retain their identity, but a strange thing happens where they intersect. They create a kind of argyle. They create a kind of plaid, mm-hmm. a weird kind of plaid. And when two waves meet, sometimes, okay, let's do this exercise again. Let's go back to logic. One plus equals two, right? So when you add one wave to another wave, what should you get, Kelly? A bigger wave. Twice as big, Yes, yes. Well, it turns out that when these two rings collide, um, at some points, you get a nothing. Mm -hmm. You get a stillness. Mm -hmm. You add two royals to each other and you don't get twice as much royal you get what looks like a calm Mm -hmm. from one plus one you get what looks like a zero how in the world did that happen well um thomas young comes up with this phrase he calls it interfere an interference effect Mm -hmm. and he basically says that if you add uh a trough to a wave the two cancel each other out Mm -hmm. and instead of getting twice as much royal you get what looks like a calm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's weird. <laughs> that, you know, um, and then, and then that, that pattern was applied to light. When you shot two, mm-hmm. and, and it was Thomas Young who did this. Remember, he was an eye doctor. He was very aware of appearances, which depend on light. So he took the light of a candle and he ran it through a concentrator, and then he had it shine on a screen that had two slits in it. And the two slits then shone on a, uh, a screen in the background. He did all this with candles. And when you combine two washes of light, you should get twice as much light, right? Yeah. But you didn't. You got, wait, you got some area where two lights intensified each other, and then where the two lights canceled each other out and made a darkness. What? Light and light making darkness? Uh-huh, uh-huh. You've got to be kidding me. And then he took a giant metaphorical jump. It's just he never used the word metaphor. And the giant metaphorical jump was that the comms that he saw in the wall in those argyles, in those plaids that were made when two rings of ripples were intersecting each other, were the same as the lines and stripes that he saw when he had these two Mm. sources of light interfering with each other or he called them interfering with each other. Well, nobody ever stopped in question and said, wait a minute, Thomas Young, didn't you read Aristotle, page 178, Posterior (laughs) Analytics, where it says that metaphor is unscientific? And haven't you just made a giant leap? Nobody ever said that. So They all went along, and they've gone along with that con for close to 200 years now. The idea that, oh, no, we're scientists. We don't use metaphor. Uh, we concentrate on whether light is a wave or a particle. So uh, so what do you think is the biggest roadblock then to science because they won't admit this metaphorical uh, milieu that they, that they live in? I mean, how is, it, how is it not helping science? Well, it's not helping science because, yes, it, let's confess that we do work with metaphor. Uh, right. Let's confess that, that there is a reason that metaphor works. Let's confess that there are these deep structures of the cosmos. There are these deep patterns that show up on level after level of emergence. 
And I give you the example of attraction and repulsion. Remember when we were sitting at our cafe table at the beginning of the universe and you predicted that the, this, this whomping sheet of space and time unfurling at a ginormous speed was suddenly going to precipitate like a rain cloud into things, mm-hmm. right? You predicted that. Um, and, um, and, and I was absolutely convinced that it wasn't true. And those first things were quarks. And those quarks came with little rule books built into them, little social rule books, like an Emily Post etiquette book, <laughs> of, of who they could get together with and who they should avoid. Those are the rules we call attraction or repulsion. Mm. So they saw, that they saw, okay, we're going to use anthropomorphism for a second just to get across the idea. A quark saw another quark that was too much like it, ran away. A quark saw another quark that was sufficiently different from it, whomp, came together instantly. That's attraction or repulsion. And the rules of attraction or repulsion show up at every level of emergence in this cosmos, whether we're looking at the emergence of the first um, atoms, the first galaxies, the first stars, the first human beings, or the first tango. Mm -hmm. What's the tango all about? It's a dance about attraction or repulsion. It's a dance about seduction. And how does the seduction process occur? Through alternating attraction and repulsion. Why do busts and booms happen? First, we're wildly attracted to something, and we think it's going to make us rich. Then we're wildly repelled by it and think that it's going to make us poor. When we, when we all think that something's going to make us rich, or almost anything is going to make us rich, we have boom. When we all believe that almost anything we touch is going to turn us into paupers overnight, we have bust. Attraction uh, or repulsion. So basically, says that metaphor works for a reason. It captures a basic pattern, an ur pattern, at one level of emergence, and captures it so well and so comprehensively to us that we can begin to apply it to other levels the same way that we apply the ripples in the pond of Thomas Young and the ripples of the pond, in a pond of Leonardo to light. Well, and it almost seems like we shouldn't be afraid of metaphor because it all we're doing is through our consciousness and our ability to think about these things and to reflect on them, we're just merely giving language to what the universe is. It's not like we're putting the metaphor on the universe. It's like, as you say in the book, the universe is the one who has the patterns. Yes, exactly. And we're just we're just creating an image or a a way to understand it and a language around it to be able to to, to speak the language of of the universe back to it. Yeah, exactly. And now here's the deal. Here's the difference between science and poetry. Poetry and all the arts are extremely helpful because they dig down to things that are so mysterious that we cannot express them in words. And they find a metaphoric way of expressing them. Mm -hmm. That's a very useful thing for science because it brings things that were submerged and hidden to the surface, even if scientists and religion does exactly the same thing. Even if it doesn't come to the surface, in terms, scientists will find appropriate. Now, here's where science comes in. Science has to recognize that some metaphors are wonderful metaphors, but they don't work. And some metaphors are wonderful metaphors, but they do work. And it's science's job to take the metaphor, extrapolate from it, see what it predicts, and see which metaphor's predictions come true and which metaphor's predictions come false. For example, Kepler. The year is around 1500. It's just a short time after Leonardo da Vinci was dropping his, maybe 20 to 30 years after Leonardo was dropping his stones into a still pond. 
and um, Kepler is trying to figure out. He's Copernicus has come up with this idea that the sun doesn't revolve around the earth; the earth revolves around the sun. And everybody who believes in this idea that the Earth revolves around the Sun is trying to figure out how far the Earth is from the Sun and how far the other five planets, because there are only five planets in those days, um, how far the other five planets are from the Sun and from the Earth. And Kepler puzzles over this and puzzles over this and puzzles over this. And one thing to realize is we always think of Kepler as using equations. No, equations... He wasn't using equations. Equations hadn't become standard issue in science yet. Hmm. They didn't become standard issue until 350 years ago, which means equations are temporary tools. And someday we must overcome them. Someday we must get beyond them. At any rate, he was working with the tool of his time, which was geometry. And in geometry, there were these things called the five platonic solids. So he figured out this magic solution to the distances between the heavenly bodies or the spheres on which they rode. And it was... You took a great big ball and you put a box inside of it. A box was one of the five platonic bodies. And you made sure that the box was built so that its corners precisely reached the inside of this big sphere. Got it? You're mm-hmm. putting boxes in balls and balls in boxes. Yep. Then you take another sphere, another big ball, and you fit it so that it precisely fits into the square. Mm-hmm. And then you take another of the geometric forms and fit it into the ball. And then you put another ball and fit it into the box, and so on and so forth. Well, since there are only there were just exactly five platonic solids, and obviously that solved the problem of the five planets plus Earth. <laughs> and it was beautiful. It was gorgeous. And he drew pictures of it. And he was, it was the thing he was the most proud of mm-hmm. in his life the achievement he was the most proud of. But guess what? Hmm. It was a great metaphor, but guess what? When it came to predicting the motions of the planets, it blew it. Yeah. It blew it big time. So not all that. That's the Kepler uh, right. cop-out, the right. Kepler conundrum, the Kepler cock-up. Right. Um, so when you're using metaphors, always watch, always watch out for the Kepler, uh, the Kepler, I can't even pronounce it, the Kepler <laughs> cock-up. Because you don't want this metaphor that's just as gorgeous as it can be, but doesn't really cut the mustard. It won't really make valid predictions. And that's the difference between science and religion. Because in religion, we don't really do a lot of questioning of our assumptions. We don't do really do a lot of questioning of our metaphors. Right. But in science, the job is to dig out every metaphor, question it, test it to the best of your ability, and do your best to challenge the assumptions of your time. Because that's how science moves ahead, by coming up with new big questions and challenging every assumption in sight. And that's the second rule of science. Look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before. Look at things that you and everybody else around you take for granted as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. And science needs a little bit more of that. Plus, there's a solution coming from the world of computers. Yes. Well, yeah, and that gets us into this this great idea that you talk about in it, which is um, repetition, that, you know, the universe uses repetition to advance itself that it it tests these patterns and it and it creates these emerging properties like we talked about by just doing things over and over again and and it and it it's it was i was i wrote something down here i can't remember what it is right now but um the uh there's the japanese sword maker and and this is a very useful story because there was a sword maker, this is a legend, but uh, it, it does reflect a certain reality. There was a sword maker around 
900 uh, applied all of the sorts to the emperor's troops. And when the emperor's troops would come back from battle, was very proud to see them marching through the streets, having achieved a victory, carrying his swords. But one day, and, and the emperor always nodded to him, always recognized him as he passed him in the street. Well, one day, when the emperor went past the empire, the emperor pretended he didn't exist, and he wondered what was wrong. Then came the troops, and he looked at the sword belts of the troops, and most of their swords were broken in half. And this was a hideous shame. I mean, you know, in Japan, they take shame a lot more seriously than we do here. Um, the guy was utterly and completely humiliated. So, uh, because he was making iron swords, and iron swords are very heavy, and iron swords break. Um, they break if they encounter any hard object. Well, um, if you're a warrior and you're about to clunk an enemy in half, um, are you going to be able to do it without clunking any hard objects like the bone of his neck, the bone of his shoulder blade, the bone of his ribs? No way. <laughs> Bodies are hard. <laughs> I mean, they have, they have bones. So he puzzled them all. I think we might have lost Howard on this one. Hold on, folks. Oh, dear. Hold on. We're looking at the Skype right now. Uh-oh, we lost Howard. Okay. Uh, hold on a second here. We're going to go to a quick little music thing, and uh, we'll be uh, right back. Where did all the songwriters go? Where did all the songwriters go? I can't take one more song about a teenage love gone wrong Or the stupid shit that happens at the mall Where did all the songwriters go? Where did all the songwriters go? I know you're feeling down that your father wasn't around But you're a man now, quit crying and move on Where did all the songwriters go? Where did all the songwriters go? As much as I love hearing about your bitches and your cars and your money, it's going a bit too far. We lost Howard there for a minute, but we've got him back. You hear Howard? I can hear me. Okay, good. Okay, good. Okay. So the sword maker fasted. Uh, he abstained from sex. <laughs> he went out to the seashores and, and gathered every little nugget of iron ore he could possibly find. Um, but the best ones, absolutely the best ones, he um, went into the forest and found absolutely the best firewood, and he took roughly two tons of iron ore, shoveled it into the furnace, um, purified it, and then took it out and, and, and picked absolutely the, uh, the best iron, iron he could, but he mixed it with charcoal, I forgot, he mixed it with charcoal, very important. And, but, of course, Kelly, add charcoal to iron, and what should you get? Iron charcoal -y stuff. Iron with a little charcoal in it, for God's sake. Uh, iron you can occasionally light on fire or roast a steak. Um, but, so, and he pounded this for, for six months. He pounded it out and flattened it. Then he folded it as if he were folding a crepe and put it over upon itself and then hammered and flattened it again. And he did this for six months. Well, if you take iron and charcoal and you keep pounding it for six months and spreading it out and then folding it over upon itself and then flattening it and folding it over upon itself again, what should you get? Iron, 
and charcoal in, iron and charcoal out. One plus one equals two, right? Mm-hmm. That's not what he got at all. He got something incredibly new. It was called steel. And it had properties that the iron and charcoal of which it was made did not have. This is another instance where Aristotle was wrong, and simply knowing how elements work and their laws would not give you what happened when you went through some elaborate process of repetition with them. And steel turned out to be so dramatically different that the next time the, the uh, emperor went out to battle and his men carried um, uh, the Yanuki's um, new swords, steel swords, first of all, they were far lighter than the others. They were far more flexible than the others. And when the, the warriors came back, every single sword was intact and the emperor stopped when he got to the sword maker's place and said, you are a terrific sword maker. And this legendary figure had done something that was done in history by some human or some group of humans. Mm. Shifting from iron swords to steel swords, making an entirely new material out of two old materials without doing anything more complex than repeating the pattern of hammering, folding, hammering, folding for six months straight. It turns out that when you do that, you summon a property. You summon a property of iron and carbon. You get the iron, you convince the iron and carbon to come together in a new molecular structure. And it is a kind of shoebox molecule. And that shoebox molecule makes all the difference in the world. Well, what's the moral of the story? Take two ingredients, one plus one, put them together, do the right things, and you can get an emergent property that utterly defies belief. Now, how you do it, we do not know. How the sword maker ever got the hint that he could do it, we do not know. Why, when you put, I mean, imagine we're at the beginning of the universe again, and we're 300,000 years, 380,000 years into the universe's existence, and all we've ever seen are these particles colliding against each other like bullets ricocheting head-on at incredible speed and then bouncing off. And, and you say to me, Howard, you know, I think that this universe, any minute now, give it a little bit of time, is going to slow down. And when it slows down, you see those things that are, relatively speaking, the size of the Empire State Building? And you see those little things that are those little flits that are, relatively speaking, the size of your fist? Those things are going to discover they have an inanimate longing. Each of them has an inanimate longing for something. It knows not what. And when they get together, they're going to discover that their inanimate longings fit perfectly. What, Kelly? <laughs> You're telling me these little tiny things, relatively speaking, the size of my fist, are going to have some sort of bizarro, inanimate longing. We all know that's anthropomorphism, Kelly. That's not science. And so are these great big things, the size of the Empire State Building, and the longings of these two things are going to fit each other? That's absurd. You must, you, we're, Kelly, it's a miracle we haven't put you in an asylum yet. Well, and, and, all of a sudden, and all of a sudden, these little flits, the size of a fist, relatively speaking, electrons, discover they have this inanimate lung that just precisely fits the, uh, the proton, these giant things, and they fit together and they create something utterly unexpected. Even you didn't expect it, Kelly. It's called an atom. It's called an atom. It has entirely new properties, and the electron settles into a shell around the proton. Where did that shell come from? <laughs> what? A shell? Give me a break, like the crystalline spheres the Kepler was dealing with. Where in the world did that come from? So periodically you've got major, major periods of 
repetition, 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 like the sword maker's repetition. And you have some incremental progress. And then periodically you've got these giant breakthroughs. And where the giant breakthroughs came from, how their form was implicit from the very beginning, and the things and the elements with which it started, that is a giant mystery. And that's the mystery at the very heart of the cosmos creativity. Yeah. I, um, um, is your volume up with me over there on your side, Howard? What's that? I can hear an can echo hear an of echo me coming back through your uh, microphone. Oh, yes, I, uh, there's a slight echo from you, too, and we're breaking up a little bit. Okay. Uh, we just have a few more minutes here. Uh, but the last thing you said here about um, – you, you talk briefly at the end of the book, and it's something that fascinates me, the difference between causality versus um, teleology. Telology, teleology. Right. Oh my God, I can never say that. Which reminds me of uh, uh, Pierre uh, Tehard de Chardin's work. Uh, yeah. And so, I. What is your take on that? Do you think that there is? It's really tricky, and it goes back to a story that's at the very heart of this book. And uh, I put you in my shoes. So you are 19 years old. You're being shipped off by your parents from Buffalo, New York, to Portland, Oregon, to go to a place called Reed College, which very few people have ever heard of. And you're, you're in a class that has the highest median SATs, scholastic aptitude tests, of any school in the country, higher than Harvard, higher than Caltech, higher than MIT. And you are about to, uh, to be placed up against a challenge that's so big that very, very few of your classmates and even you can barely, barely handle it. Most can't handle it at all. You're in math class on the very first day, and you don't know who your teacher's going to be. There are 20 of you sitting around a big conference table. You smell the teacher coming before you see her or hear her because she's carrying mimeograph paper, which has mimeograph paper is an antique way of making lots of copies of something, and it uses chemicals that are very pungent and almost addictively sweet. So you smell the sweet odor coming down the corridor. She walks into the room. She hands this little pile of papers to the student on her right and asks him to pass it around. You get yours. You look at it and go, what the hell is this? There's only half the sheet of paper has anything on it. And it's got 165 miserable little words. And they are miserable little words because you can barely understand them. But still, only 165 words. And for the rest of the year, your job every week, these are five rules, five very simple but almost impossible to understand rules called Piano's Axioms. And your job every week will be to extract a new corollary, a new implicit property from these 165 words. And guess what? By the end of the year, you've got eight grammar school textbooks worth of math that you have extracted from these 165 words. You've got multiplication, addition, subtraction, positive numbers, negative numbers, squares, square roots, the whole deal. You know, um, 80 pounds or 8 pounds worth of books from 165 words. How in the world did that happen? How in the world was the entire natural number system implicit hmm. in 165 words? And could the universe be functioning like a student at Reed College doing her homework? <laughs> Could the universe start with a handful of simple rules, three, four, or five of them, rules like uh, attraction and repulsion, and then extract the implicate properties? Now, think about something. The universe works in something called Planck time, and there are 10 with 43 zeros after it, Planck units, in every second of time. 
So the universe can do 10 with 43 zeros after it, homework assignments in a second. That's a lot of homework assignments. <laughs> now, you, over the course of 10 months, did approximately 40 homework assignments. How much more could you have accomplished if you were able to do 10 with 43 zeros after it? homework assignments. Mm. How much more could you find? Now, the big mystery is how do all of these strange things like the shells around a proton when an electron is in its presence, how do those things remain implicit in something? How in the world are they hidden there? Um, that's a huge mystery, but at least the book traces you through a thought process that tends to indicate that yes, the universe is very much like a Reed College student doing her homework, and all of those guys in physics who are obsessed with equations and think that only equations are it and don't realize that equations weren't even invented until 1570 um, and think that equations are the cosmos, um, they've, they've got news coming for them because they, they are stuck with something like 27 to 57 variables that they think they've got to have in order to establish a cosmos, but if they're only three, four, or five simple rules on which the cosmos is based, the cosmos is a lot simpler place than they imagined. Hmm. Yeah. Simpler but weirder. The other thing that you alluded to was the end of the book in which it says, in essence, that immaterial things have powers we don't normally look at in science. And it's essential that we do look at them. And do we have time for me to give you the example of the wave? Uh, we have, uh, we four, have minutes. four minutes. Four minutes. I'm going to try to do this quick. You're, you've just gone with the sex object of your dreams to London for an incredible libidinous weekend. You get on the plane flying back to the United States. You look out the window. It's mid-afternoon. What do you see? Waves. You're looking at the Atlantic Ocean. And you see a wave that could, you could follow just one wave from the, 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 below the belly of the plane to as far as your eye can possibly see, and that wave retains a distinct identity. And you can continue to watch as it travels across the Atlantic, and you realize that that wave is going to go 1,000 miles. It's going to go all the way to the coast of Maine. But what is it that goes to the coast of Maine, Kelly? Nothing. Mm -hmm. What do I mean by nothing? I mean, you know, if you were there on the coast of Maine waiting for it to come and you had a surfboard, you could ride it. If you were one of those explorers who likes to go out and explore the rocks and you went out far enough onto the rocks to see it coming and you slipped, it could kill you. It could mangle you. Um, certainly the 230,000 people in 2004 who were killed in Indonesia could tell you a wave is really real if they weren't dead. Mm. The same with the 19,000 people who died in Fukushima in 2011. So what the hell does Bloom mean when he says this wave is nothing? Because no thing actually travels from that spot you saw in the middle of the Atlantic all the way to the coast of Maine. What? No thing? Yeah. All that happens, now imagine you're a water molecule in the sea. All you ever do, Kelly, is bob up and down. You never travel the distance from the middle of the Atlantic to the coast of Maine. Never. Nor does anything travel to the coast of Maine. The wave is just a bunch of molecules like you bobbing up and down in place. So then what the hell is the wave if it's no thing? If it doesn't have any dependence on any specific batch of matter, if it picks up one batch of matter promiscuously, tosses it away, and grabs hold of another. Well, in this book, it's called a recruitment strategy, but because it recruits things. It seduces, kidnaps, and recruits groups of atoms or molecules to do its thing, and then throws them away and moves on to another group. It is a no thing. It is a form. 
It is a form with an identity all its own. It is a form with a remarkably resilient identity. That's what Leonardo discovered was the resilience of the identity of a form without substance. Yes, it has substance, but no substance it can call its own. It just moves on from one batch of substance to another. It is a no thing. It is a form on the march. And the mystery of form on the march, the mystery of an immaterial thing of that kind, is a mystery that physics and, and all of science and even philosophy has to try to comprehend in a far more serious manner. And it's something that the Buddha talked about 2,500 years ago. Um, it's been talked about in religion. It's been talked about in uh, certainly art is all about it. And, and that's why we have to take science and art seriously, but never forget that some things are Kepler cock-ups. Not all appealing metaphors work. Right. And the job of science is to go through them and see which ones work and which ones don't. Well, Howard, as usual, you have completely blown my mind, and I swear to God, we could do this for... That's what I live for, Kelly, is to blow your... I'm serious. I live to blow your mind. And, and we, we only scratched the surface of what I'd hoped we had talked about, so clearly we need to do this again and again and again. Yes. I'm all for it. So, everyone, uh, thank you, Howard, so much for being here. Sorry for the bad Skype. Uh, connection and uh, we will talk soon and maybe we will have a part two of the God problem next month and we can talk about the rest of the stuff that we didn't get to. That would be wonderful. Fan- oh and help people go check out just look up Big Bagel on YouTube and they'll see the animation of a theory that appears as the Maragino cherry on the cake of the book. <laughs> it's had, uh, had 400,000 hits so far. Oh good. So far. Good for you. Thank you Howard. Thank you Howard. Okay, Callie, talk to you soon. So, uh, like I said, I think I got to like one-fifth of what I wanted to talk to Howard about because, A, he's a fantastic storyteller and he just – this is why his his books are 500 pages. But they don't feel that long because he takes you on these amazing adventures inside these scientists' mind and he does this incredible research. And um, this last thing he was talking about, the whole thing about the wave, he then brings home because he talks about how we are actually these recruitment strategies, our very bodies, because our bodies are replacing cells at a speed that we are not the same thing than we were seven years ago or 50 days ago. And and our minds are killing off neurotransmitters. I mean, all this kind of stuff and that we are just a basic er pattern ourselves. And so we are just ex- doing exactly what the quarks did and exactly what everything else did. And yet we have consciousness and we have uh, Twitter and the space shuttle. <laughs> it's fascinating stuff. Blows my mind. And there is some meaning here that he really is talking about the importance of metaphor and that it is where science and art um, and, 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 and soul and depth and all those things that are important to me come together. And it's why when I was 15, reading The Tao of Physics and The Dance of the Wu Li Masters were two books that physicists were trying to bring together Buddhism and Taoism with physics. And it fascinated me. And I knew that the, the answers to the universe were in there so, somewhere. And this book, this The God Problem, is similar to that because it holds the material with the immaterial and the importance of these two things and how they aren't actually separate. They really are different sides of the same coin. And it's very exciting. And Howard pisses off a lot of scientists. And he also thrills a lot of scientists because a lot of scientists think about these things and can't and are not allowed to talk about it. And, and you know, 
it's pretty cool stuff. So um, we will have Howard on again next month. We'll figure that out and we'll get to get to do more in-depth stuff with him and uh, talk about some other things. So I want to thank you all for um, being here today. If you were here live and ignored the debates, thank you very much. If not, and you're listening on the podcast, well, you know, we love you so much. Thank you so much. Tell a friend, as they say. And um, if you want to support our efforts here on the podcast, please go to our page, kellycarlin.com forward slash waking. And there's a little PayPal button. You can donate some money to us. Uh, helps us with our things. We've got some things in the works now that are going to help you even make it easier to uh, support our efforts here at Waking from the American Dream. I want to thank Logan today for hanging out and uh, <laughs> being watching his mind being blown simultaneously while my mind is being blown by Howard. It's like, thank God he's here. He's witnessing this i'm not all by myself and (laughs) and so we have a lot to think about tonight logan we certainly do um and i want to uh thank carly and donnie for letting us play their music and of course all the people at smodcast you can follow us on twitter at waking ammer dream or follow me at kelly underscore carlin and uh next thursday october 18th i'll be at the santa monica playhouse with a carlin home companion um please come down ticket sales are a little sluggish this month that's ned barking in the background hi ned um so please come down if you're in la and want to see the show and uh i think that's it we're going to go out with uh, more carly and donnie and this one is more about the vajayj it's called bikini wax five six seven eight Well, I woke up this morning to finally see that shaving my pubes is not for me. So I decided to get a bikini wax. A bikini wax. Well, I talked to my friends. They all said it's fine. They get it done all the time just beforehand. Make sure you drink a lot of wine. Get fucking trashed. Well, I worked up my nerve and I went into the room unaware of what I was about to go through because I was kind of drunk. From drinking so much vino An Iranian lady who didn't speak English Laid me down and applied the strip She applied the strip really close to my clit Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah Well, holding my friend's hands, I tightened my grip And then she fucking let it rip And I screamed Holy shit It's a bikini Fast and strong till all of that hair's gone It's a bikini wax Well, the tears welled up in my eyes A burning sensation in between my thighs In between my thighs With every pull and every tear The pain increased and I got more scared I thought she was gonna rip my thighs right off just when I thought I couldn't take any more, she told me to roll over and I asked what for. That's when she put hot wax on my tush. I jumped up, said, fuck it, I'm cool with my bush. Bikini wax, you gotta be calm and you gotta relax. It's a bikini wax. It's a bikini wax. Everyone's raving, but I'll stick to shaving. It's a 
This has been a production of Smodco Internet Radio. Sir, only at smodcast.com.